uh, I did I did send to Jenny. Uh, anyway, I have a predictive text issue from time to time. But if you can open your Bibles to uh, page number is uh, eight three three in the church Bibles. Do I need to press anything, Jenny? So actually, let me just begin by reading the passage. It's Matthew 27. We're going to read the first 31 verses. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver to the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? or Jesus who is called the Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, Which of the two of you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, 
delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Well, it's kind of a horrific story, isn't it, really? You know, uh, chapter 26 ended last Sunday with Peter weeping bitterly over the threefold betrayal of the Lord in the courtyard of the high priest. And now here chapter 27 begins with Judas's bitter remorse over his own betrayal of the Lord. And what we see is two men, both sinful, both brought very low by their own conscience. And verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27 simply express the reality of the situation. Having come to the decision to have Jesus executed, the religious leaders must now find a way to have their verdict implemented. Only the Roman governor can give an order of execution. So it says, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. This was the beginning of the Roman trial of Jesus. And once Jesus had been handed over to them, he remained in Roman custody until his death. But starting in verse 3, Matthew interrupts his narrative of the Lord's trial in order to complete the story of Judas before returning to the trial. And we should note that the placing of Judas's narrative is only two short verses after the story of Peter's betrayal, which I believe is intentional so that we might actually form a contrast between these two men. Both men had betrayed Jesus. Both betrayals had been predicted by the Lord Jesus himself beforehand. Both men wept bitterly in remorse over what they had done. And verse 3 says that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. It was when Judas learned that Jesus had been condemned and would be executed that he was suddenly filled with remorse. I mean, he saw the reality of the consequences of what he had done. And for the first time, I think, he realized the enormity of his betrayal. I mean, is it possible that, you know, having seen Jesus escape the crowds at will, having seen him raise people from the dead, as well as all the other miracles he saw performed, is it possible that Judas thought, until that moment, that Jesus would just wave this off as another incident he could deal with without too much fuss? I mean, the fact that Jesus is given a death sentence shocks Judas, and it precipitates an astonishing about face. He's suddenly stricken with guilt, and he wants to undo what he's done. He repents, painfully aware that, that he has sinned. Verse 4, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But what can he do with his change of heart? Where can he find repentance? Well, Judas chooses to confess his sin to the chief priests and the elders. 
his partners in crime, so to speak. But all they do is shrug their shoulders and say, hey, what is this to us? See to it yourself. I mean, they had no concern for justice or Judas or his change of heart. All they wanted was Jesus. And now that they had him, there was no need for justice or Judas. Feeling trapped, guilt-ridden, hopeless, Judas hurled the money into the temple, but the coins just simply clattered off the marble walls and the floors. And then he seized the only release he felt was open to him. He put a rope around his neck and he jumped into the void of darkness and despair and death. You know, I don't believe that Judas actually anticipated the inner shame and the remorse and the misery that came upon him. I mean, it wasn't until Jesus was actually condemned, when Judas saw Jesus being bound and led away by the religious authorities, it wasn't until then that he realized the seriousness of the abuse and the cruelty and the physical punishment and above all the crucifixion that Jesus was going to be forced to endure. And now that his deed was done, well, his conscience grabbed hold of him. It gave him no peace at all. And his conscience prevented him from being able to live with himself. I mean, he couldn't even enjoy the money. And apparently there in verse 6, the priests had more concern for the money than Judas did. They gathered up the coins on the floor and then discussed what to do with them. And not wanting to put tainted blood money into the temple treasury, they decided to buy a cemetery for the poor. Now their discussion of what to do with the blood money is sadly filled with, with irony. Firstly, the religious leaders were concerned by such ethical behavior as not wanting to taint the purity of the temple offerings with blood money. A discussion that is almost comical when it's seen in the light of their simultaneous involvement in the conspiracy to murder Jesus. And secondly, in the purchase of the potter's field, the temple leaders, the, the experts in the Old Testament scriptures, inadvertently fulfilled a prophecy concerning Jesus' death that they might have been able to avoid if they thought about seeing their murderous actions through the lens of the scripture. And lastly, they used the blood money to buy a burial site for the dead. Well, at the same time, Jesus was going to the cross to die as a ransom for many and then to be raised from the dead. Judas' story, I think, is an especially tragic story. You know, the reality of suicide always has a sense of tragedy attached to it. But Judas wasn't alone in his deceit and his disloyalty. Peter, too, had denied Jesus. And the more that we look at Judas and at Peter... I think the more we can see the potential for faithlessness in ourselves. See, the difference between these two men doesn't lie in the fact that one betrayed the Lord and the other didn't. It's not that one was guilty and the other was innocent. But what these two men had in common was a conscience that condemned each of them for their sin. It was their conscience that revealed to each man the shame in their soul, and they left each one of them mourning for what he was, for what he had done. See, everyone 
needs forgiveness. The best and the worst men and women are alike in that one respect. Everyone is guilty. Everyone needs cleansing. And our conscience helps us with that. In fact, our conscience is a gift from God that proves itself over and over again to us if only we'll listen to it. And the difference between Peter and Judas is not the witness of their conscience to their own evil. I mean, both men had that. The difference is that Peter still had Judas, sorry, still had Jesus, and Judas didn't. And the result was that Peter's remorse led to a renewal of his faith in Christ. While Judas's remorse led to despair because he couldn't see where to unload his terrible burden of guilt and, and shame. His apostasy, you see, had removed the possibility of his turning to Christ. As one scholar put it, conscience is the last thing left to men and women after they have squandered and lost everything else that God has given them. A conscience cannot save you. Only Christ can do that. But a conscience can force you to face your sin. It can churn up waves of shame within you. It can remind you of what you are and what you've done. And it can bring you to a point of confession. However, it cannot deliver you from yourself. Only Christ can do that. And that, that one simple fact points to the deepest tragedy about Judas. The tragedy is not that Judas is more guilty than the others, because in reality he isn't. Now the saddest thing, the real tragedy of his life, is that he took his change of heart, his shame and his remorse, and his confession to the place of death, and not to the place of life, which was the Lord Jesus. And like all humanity, Judas had innocent blood in his hands. And when he approached the temple leaders, they rejected him. What does that have to do with us, they asked him. But Judas wanted to confess his sin. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And, you know, I think his ultimate decision of suicide reveals that he thought the stain of the blood on his hands could never be removed. But if we think about Judas, you know, what, what he failed to hear, what he failed to remember or to understand was what Jesus said to him and to all the disciples only a few hours before in the upper room. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And with the fate of Judas still ringing in our ears, Verse 11, Matthew returns to the scene of the trial of Jesus as he appears before Pilate. And Pilate asks that crucial question, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' reply was something like, So you say. But in any case, Pilate would have already known about Jesus of Nazareth. He would have already known that he had no army, that he had no desire for political power. I mean, hordes of people had been following Jesus for months. And no doubt his entry into the city only a few days before would have been tracked and monitored by the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. I mean, there's no doubt Jesus would have simply had to be on Pilate's radar long before now. Still, he asked this question, and verse 14, we find Pilate is amazed by the Lord's silence. 
R.T. France, one of the commentators, says that Pilate would not have been used to silence from a Jewish defendant or any other defendant facing capital charges for that matter. In fact, it was a judicial embarrassment because Roman judges disliked sentencing undefended men. And it also presents a dilemma for Pilate. On the one hand, he didn't want to provoke the Sanhedrin to incite a riot because, well, Rome expected the provinces to be under control. And if he has a riot, it means he is either weak or he has poor judgment. Well, on the other hand, he knew that the Jews were trying to execute Jesus on non-existent, fake charges, and he also knew that they were trying to bully him into doing their dirty work for them. So it's really a straight choice between conscience and career. Or maybe put another way, a choice between satisfying the Jews he hated or the Caesar that he feared. So the cunning pilot comes up with a plan. And his plan takes up most of our text this morning, which ends with the Lord Jesus being crucified in the place of Barabbas. And in these verses, we have three types of sinners that we see. There is the blatant sinner. Uh, this is Barabbas. The sinner whose sin is out in the open. It's obvious, and there is little or no effort to conceal it. Secondly, there is the sinner who hides himself or herself behind a, a veil of religion. They're hypocrites, really. These are the religious sinners, the Sanhedrin and the mob, whose wickedness and Self-righteousness is hidden behind a fake religiosity. And finally, there is the respectable sinner, which is represented by Pilate, whose wickedness is obscured behind a, a veil of nobility and power and a hidden agenda. And in looking closer at Barabbas, the blatant sinner, verse 16 tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. And, you know, I think we can assume that he had become notorious because of his crimes. He fit into the worst category of prisoner. And he was condemned to die in the most shameful manner on a cross at the hands of the Romans. You know, when he woke up that morning, he must have felt as if there was absolutely no hope whatsoever for him. And John tells us that he was a robber. And the word that John uses for robber is the same word that Luke uses for robber in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Barabbas was the worst kind of robber. And here in chapter 27, verse 44, Matthew tells us, and using the same word again for robber, that the robbers were crucified with Jesus. I mean, these men, I think, were certainly the companions of Barabbas because the Roman authorities had prepared to crucify three men that morning. And Barabbas seems to have been the leader because he is the one that Pilate has called out by name to stand alongside Jesus. The scripture tells us that it was customary for the Roman governor to release prisoners at the time of Passover. And the custom was actually for the governor to select a handful of petty non-violent, non-political prisoners for the crowd to choose one from. But never, under normal circumstances, would it have been a man with such a reputation as, as Barabbas had. 
And I think it's unlikely. No, I, well, it's quite possible that Barabbas' crimes were so heinous and his reputation so odious that Pilate never dreamed for even a moment that the crowd would choose Barabbas. So he put up Jesus and Barabbas as the two candidates. Verse 17, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? In fairness, Pilate's strategy looks fairly sound. The people had every reason to fear Barabbas, while it was only a few days earlier the whole city had turned out to welcome Jesus with palm leaves and the shouts of Hosanna. I mean, how could they possibly choose Barabbas over Jesus? But they did. And that brings us to our, our second group, the religious sinners. The mob, which was made up of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and their followers. Now, these are not just ordinary people. These are the same people who followed Jesus while he, was, while he healed their sick, while he raised their dead, while he cast out demons right in front of their very eyes. He provided food for them and for their children and their families. He'd never done anything wrong. And all he ever really did for them was speak the truth to them. But when the Sanhedrin began to wind them up, they turned against Jesus in a way that is almost impossible to fathom. It's both shocking, it's, it's irrational. It's really, I think, an, an illustration of how the world is naturally drawn to those things that are corrupt and evil. It shows how fallen human nature will inevitably express itself by violence and hatred towards everything that is pure and holy. And we see it all around us today. Secular society is tolerant of everything except that which is pure and honest and holy. It's also amazing that this is taking place just four or five days after the triumphal entry. I mean, is it possible to explain, aside from some sort of explanation of mob psychology, what which the priests and the Pharisees and the other religious leaders seemed to employ with impunity as they whipped up the crowd into frenzy. And it's represented the most blatant hypocrisy on their part. These are the people who claimed the law of God. They claimed the faith of their fathers, but what they really wanted was status, admiration, the praise of men. Jesus infuriated them when he called them out as people who stand and pray on the street corners in order to be seen by others. He would tell them things like, you have no concern for God or what he actually thinks of you. And we also know from John chapter 11 that these leaders had already decided several months before this that they would arrest Jesus and put him to death. And now we see him brought to this kangaroo court in the middle of the night to be judged by those same men who agreed months ago that they were going to kill him. They are hypocrites. And if we think about the crowd, well, they are hate-filled and resentful. And now they want blood from Hosanna. They're now screaming, let him be crucified. 
And they're doing this in the name of religion and in the belief that they're doing God's work for him. This is pure, unmitigated hypocrisy and evil. And it's a reminder to all of us that there is no greater expression of human wickedness than false religion. The New Testament letters of John, Paul, Jude, Peter, they all explain the danger and the wickedness in every generation that arises out of false teaching and false religion. You see, rank hypocrisy masquerading as religious orthodoxy produces sinister results. Sort of a theological equation, isn't it? Hypocrisy plus religious orthodoxy equals sinister results. And we tend to think of religion as, well, as the highest of human pursuits. But unless it's a genuine faith that is based in the one true living God, then it is actually the most odious expression of human depravity. And in the worst manifestations, like we see here in our text, the religious sinner reveals a heart as, uh, as dark and as savage as the tortured soul of the blatant and notorious sinner like Barabbas. And that brings us to the last type of human evil we see illustrated here in our passage. We see the blatant sinner and the religious sinner, and now we see the respectable sinner. The person whose wickedness is hidden behind a mask of nobility and power and intellect, which, of course, is Pilate. See, Pilate had all the advantages of his position, education, wealth, political power, judicial power. He even had authority over the Roman military in the district. And even if there was no reason to respect him as a man of character, that his position demanded respect. And I don't think we should look over the fact that there were moments of noble character in Pilate's dealing with Jesus. I mean, he clearly did not want to be involved in the gross and deliberate miscarriage of justice that the Jews were suggesting. And Pilate accurately read their evil motives in verse 18. It says he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. You see, he saw that it wasn't guilt, but goodness in Jesus that the priests and the religious leaders hated so much. And we know from Luke chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, that his original intention was to give Jesus a few cursory lashes and then let him go. Luke writes, Pilate says, Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and then release him. And again in Luke, he actually desires, or he wants to declare Jesus innocent. He does it repeatedly. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. John records in chapter 18, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I can't find any guilt in him. Later in chapter 19, he writes, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then later on again in chapter 19, one last time, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And back here in Matthew chapter 27, verse 23, when the mob is shouting, let him be crucified, Pilate responds, why? 
What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You see, his idea that the crowd should choose between Jesus and Barabbas actually had some merit, but notice that when Pilate first asked there, in chapter, verse 17, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? It was at that very moment that his wife sent a message to him. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Apparently she had been woken with some worrisome dream about Jesus that impressed upon her a real concern for her husband's situation. And notice that she calls Jesus a righteous man. I mean, is it possible that her suffering much was because her dream had revealed to her that Jesus was truly a just man? He was an innocent man being made to suffer unjustly. And while the wife was trying to get her message to her husband, verse 20 tells us the chief priests and the elders, well, they took the opportunity to spread the word to the mob. Ask for Barabbas. Destroy Jesus. Suddenly, Pilate found that he was cornered by his own plan. He seems to be almost ready to beg them now to let Jesus go. So he asked them again, which of the two do you want me to release for you? But again they scream, Barabbas. And having offered the choice to the people, he had little choice but to follow through and turn an innocent, righteous man over to the crowd or face a riot and a possible end to his career. You know, it made me wonder when I was reading this this week, is if his wife's dream was maybe a warning, could it have been a divine offer? Was the dream a tangible token of God offering his grace to Pilate and his wife? I mean, is it possible that God was offering Pilate a chance to do the right thing concerning justice, or maybe even possibly to believe in Jesus? Sadly, whatever it was, Pilate actually ignored it. And what we find is that when the moment came, Pilate showed his real self behind the facade of his power and his nobility. He was, in fact, an evil man. When his own ambition was at stake, Pilate traded his honor and his integrity for the price of his ambition and his political reputation. He was so blinded by power and political expediency that he overlooked or he missed the most precious thing that had ever happened to him. Standing right in front of him was the incarnation of all truth. The way, the truth, and the life was standing right there. And Pilate, along with Jesus, bound and bloodied, Pilate had the chance to ask Jesus anything he wanted. And John records for us that Pilate could do no more than muster a, a sarcastic question. What is truth? Sad, isn't it? Such a lost opportunity. He never realized what was happening. But he did realize that he had lost control of the situation. Verse 24, he 
took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. But washing his hands did nothing to cleanse Pilate of his guilt. He too was guilty of murdering Jesus. Turning Jesus over to the mob was an act of cowardice and compromise and self-interest. But it was also a criminal act to send an innocent man to his death. Pilate, the respected man of influence, the public face of Roman justice in Judea, sold out his integrity and his honor because he valued the favor of men. He was no less guilty than the priests, the elders, and the mob who thoughtlessly and recklessly cursed themselves and their children. I find verse 25 incredible. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Think about that. Those poor children, they, they weren't even there. Some of them hadn't even been born yet. But imagine that. I wonder how many of them realized what they were actually saying, screaming at the top of their lungs to have all the guilt for the death of the Lord Jesus placed upon them and their children. I mean, what had Jesus done, you know, to them that they hated him with such intensity? He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a robber. He wasn't a blasphemer. But verse 26 ends the trial and the sentencing. Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You know, Pilate had the power to have stopped that entire episode at any moment. But instead, he chose to send Jesus to death. Even though he knew that Jesus was perfectly innocent, and he declared him to be so on several occasions. And so we see in Pilate the respectable sinner, a person who doesn't necessarily hate Jesus or overtly reject him, but they are partners in his crucifixion because of their apathy, their indifference, their indecision, their inaction. And like Pilate, they don't see any faults in him, but neither do they bow down to him as Lord and Savior. We also see the religious center. Some of them are openly hostile to Christ and the scriptures, and some of them are just simply benign hypocrites. But all of them, eventually, will show their opposition to the Lord Jesus in some way or another. And then there is the blatant, or maybe we want to call them the notorious sinner. Those whose sin has no veil or mask to cover it up. I mean, they might seem to be the most hopeless of all sinners, but in reality, they are the ones to whom the gospel promises the most. As we know, Christ came not to call the righteous or the respectable, he came to call the notorious sinners to repentance. He died in the place of sinners like Barabbas, sinners like me, sinners like you. And the Bible teaches us that if you are someone who is willing to confess your sin rather than cover it up, then there is hope for you. The promise of 1 John 1 9 is for all of us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that is the gospel. 
and it's perfectly illustrated by the release of Barabbas. Because as we apply our text this morning to Barabbas, we see that he illustrates the, sense, the central foundational principle of gospel truth. J.C. Rowell explains that Barabbas is a lively illustration of the great Christian doctrine of substitution. To see Barabbas, the, the real criminal, is released. He's set free. Jesus, innocent and guiltless. But he is the one condemned and sentenced to death. And so it is in the salvation of a soul. We are all by nature like Barabbas. The Bible tells us we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve God's wrath and His condemnation, and yet we are counted as righteous and set free through Christ. It's the Lord Jesus. He is perfectly innocent, and yet He is counted a sinner, and He's punished as a sinner for us. He's put to death so that we may live. Christ suffers. He's sinless, guiltless, and we are pardoned, although guilty. And it's all because of what Christ has done for us. So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And we see the application of that in Romans 10 and 9. As Paul again wrote, we see the saving, soul-saving application. As Paul writes again, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead according to the scriptures, you will be saved. And as we close this one, let me just assure you that happy are the men and women who know that doctrine, who understand it, and have laid hold of it by faith for the salvation of their own soul. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we, we cannot comprehend the depth of the love and the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us some inkling of it this very day and that we would embrace it truly by faith in him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, our closing hymn is, Be Still, My Soul.
Well, let me thank everyone for coming this morning. Let me invite you to stay and chat. Have a cup of coffee if you like. But remain standing for a blessing, if you will. Now unto him who has raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.